1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 144 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a handsome and charismatic television executive turned on-air host, Andy Cohen. The 48-year-old is, for better or worse, largely responsible for creating the reality television era in which we now live, as the primary force behind Bravo's Real Housewives franchise. He also created and hosts a unique and popular late-night talk show, Watch What Happens Live, which also airs on Bravo. Cohen has been a part of the New York television scene since 1990, when he began a meteoric rise to prominence, initially behind the scenes at CBS, then at Barry Diller's Startup Cable Network Trio, and, starting in 2005, at Bravo where he helped to develop and or oversaw shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, Project Runway, for which he won a Peabody Award in 2007, Top Chef, for which he won an Emmy Award in 2010, and, starting in 2006, a phalanx of shows about wealthy and often outrageous housewives, which, for millions of Americans, have become must-see TV, the modern successor to the soap opera. Cohen's colorful in-house commentary about the Housewives led to a series of events through which he ultimately realized his real dream of being on TV himself as the host of his own talk show, which quickly gained a following and expanded from one night a week to two to its current five, and which made him the first ever openly gay host of an American late night talk show. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Cohen and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, What it was like growing up as an ambitious but closeted gay boy in St. Louis at a time when he felt he couldn't acknowledge his sexuality to friends or family. How he made his way to New York and worked his way up the social and professional food chains. Why he initially resisted going to Bravo, resented some of the talent that he had to deal with when he arrived there, and ultimately championed the housewife's concept how he responds to the not insignificant number of people who scathingly accuse him of dumbing down America, setting back feminism, and playing an instrumental role in creating a climate in which Donald Trump could become president of the United States, and why he came to love his work on Watch What Happens Live so much that he ultimately gave up his executive responsibilities to focus full-time on creating a late-night talk show unlike any other. Oh, and we also play a round of Cohen's trademark plead the fifth game, and cover all sorts of other fun stuff. He's a great sport, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So, without further ado, let's go to it.
2: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we
2: are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry,
1: sorry, we're
2: here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Andy, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Normally, I get right into the questions, but I have to just share a quick little funny thing, which is that it turns out, unbeknownst to both of us, we were both at a very cool thing, a small thing at the same time in November 2009. I come into New York with a, a a female friend of mine. I go to this little premiere of a of a documentary about Valentino, yeah. And then afterwards, we hear there, you know, there's the after party at the Boom Boom Room, which I think was one of your yep. one of your places. And show up there, and it's kind of quiet and slow and whatever, and we're having fun, but you know, just drinking. You know, goes gets late. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose around us. And the event was being DJed by Madonna's boyfriend. Yes. Very young guy at the time. And we look around and, oh, Madonna has shown up and, is, uh, showed up and is hitting the dance floor, I guess, to try to get the thing going. So everybody around us, you know, we're not dancers, my friend and I, but we're looking around. Everybody else is seizing the moment and yeah. going dancing with Madonna. So we say, you know what? What the hell? Right. And there's nobody's ever, it's going to be a great story. Nobody's ever going to believe this. Because her people were knocking phones out of the way and whatever. So, fine. Nobody did really believe it for years and years and years. Then I get a tweet. A few years later, somebody found a photo and said, is that you with Madonna on the dance floor? And I said, I couldn't believe I opened it up. I put it up on my social media and the funniest thing was that everybody said, "Forget about Madonna. That's Andy Cohen to your that's right." So, funny. so I don't oh know. My it was God, this funny, is the funniest. Oh yeah, there I am. And that's
2: my best friend Bruce with his hand around yes, her. Yes, he was not. Being yeah, we shy. were just glomming <laughs> onto her as right. much as we could.
1: Well, she's one of your ultimates, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was. She a, hasn't done my show. Well, not yet. She's on the list. Not yet. But that was that was hilarious. That's because uh, That was really my introduction to to you because at that point it was. Two thousand nine. That was the
2: year my talk show. You were premiered. just
1: going on, yeah. And, yeah. And I must say that prior to that, I was not really in the. I was not a housewives person, you know. But it was yeah. a. It started me on. That's funny. On a, so anyway, where we normally begin is just a basic. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living?
2: Born and raised in St. Louis. Parents were in the food manufacturing and distribution business. My parents. My family owned this company since 1901. My great-grandfather started it, and I spent every summer working in the family business. I did everything from work on the assembly line to make deliveries. I drove a forklift, believe it or not. (laughs) Yeah, I was there every summer. I knew I wanted to work in TV. My family had no connection to TV. It was something totally foreign, and I just said, okay, I'm just going to break away. I knew that I could run the family business potentially Mm -hmm. if you know I wanted to stay in St. Louis and do that, but I didn't.
1: So just to reiterate, you're growing up in the middle of the country. Yeah. Sounds like middle class. Yep. And what was your actual personal exposure and and level of interest in pop culture generally. Right? Oh, it was
2: it was uh, high. I mean, I was the guy in high school who subscribed to Interview magazine and I was like poring over it and I loved TV. I mean, there were three TV channels. I was glued to the TV. I wanted to be a part of it. Then cable came along when I was in kind of early high school or maybe 8th grade, something like that. And I was blown away by MTV and CNN. And I just, you know, and my original goal was I wanted to be myself on TV in some iteration. Which in those days was not a common thing at all. It wasn't. I mean, you know, maybe on morning television. I don't know what that would have been. I, I, I said to myself, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to study broadcast journalism. I had a great regard for broadcast journalism. It was a time when TV news Kind of meant something, right, right? And I wound up working at CBS News in New York behind the scenes for ten years. But before we even go there, okay. let me
1: ask you this: the mechanics of TV interested you at a very young age. I was reading about the fact that this book, the I Love Lucy book, played a big part in your life. Why was that?
2: I used to check it out from the library as much as I could, and it was behind the scenes. It was the behind the scenes story of the making of that show and how it came together and whatever. And I was just. I was fascinated. I was like, here's my favorite, one of my favorite shows. And wow, Lucy made Vivian Vance, you know, be fatter than her. <laughs> and she was fighting with Desi. And Desi revolutionized the way sitcoms were shot. And I just couldn't believe there was this big story behind the show. And I th- and I was like, wow, people get, this is a business people get paid for. <laughs> and
1: I could be a part of this. Okay, so- Another thing just to set the scene before you go off to New York and really start on this path What was it like, if it's not too personal to ask, growing up in the middle of the country at that time, knowing that you were gay? Man. It was
2: not great. I didn't yeah. have any gay role models. Uh, gay people on TV at the time consisted of like Paul Lind and Charles Nelson Reilly, right. who were really punchlines. I mean, they were delivering punchlines, but, you know, it was not. They were not aspirational right. to me. And so that was not necessarily who I thought I wanted to become at some point. How early so, on
1: did you know that was what you I were? knew
2: I was gay from you know, the time my dad was taking me to the tennis club when I was seven mm-hmm. and I was spending too much time in the locker room. <laughs> and so yeah, no, that was that was in an idyllic childhood, that was definitely the um that was the hiccup. And it was a big hiccup. And it was something that kept me up at night. And I, you know, my parents were very accepting, liberal family, but I did not think they would accept me. They didn't have any gay
1: people in their lives. So they didn't find out until after high school and everything, right? Right. They
2: found out in college about a few months after I came out in college.
1: But what's interesting also is that while you were still presumably living at home, still attending high school, you've said that, it wasn't a matter of, you know, your peers necessarily either knowing or caring. Because let's just note, if I have my notes correct, voted most talkative, biggest gossip, but also class president. You yes. were a, you know, popular I was really kid. popular. Yeah.
2: I was really popular. And, you know, I think in some level people must have, you know, they weirdly they didn't know. It yeah. was just a different time. Yeah, It was, I graduated high school in 1986. It was just... Think about it. The real world started, I think, in 90 or 91. And that was the first kind of gay guy my age that was on TV. So there was just not a representation of being gay around. There so just wasn't. It. it was gay people were dying of AIDS. Right. That was it. And they were punchlines.
1: So, so any turmoil, though, that it caused was internal is what you're basically saying. Yes, yeah.
2: absolutely. It was not something I discussed with anyone. Right. Yeah.
1: So now, just sticking on high school for a moment, who were, I guess, Gene and Jackie? This is also- Genie co- and Jackie. Jeannie and Jackie.
2: Uh, were two girlfriends of mine in high school who- Hilariously enough, I mean, here we are. It's 2017. I right. spoke to both of them this morning. Really, Jackie's re- renovating my house in Sag Harbor. Okay, Jeannie, I posted a picture of on Instagram yesterday. We made plans for Memorial Day weekend. They're still very much a part of my life, but I call them the original Real Housewives because I was stirring the shit up with them.
1: Right. They know, had a little feud or something. They
2: were like front of they were best friends, but <laughs> frenemies, and they were like. My Alexis and Crystal, right. and uh, you know my Vicky and Tamra. However, <laughs> whatever analogy or metaphor you want to say, right? And you know, I was the guy that was like, "Oh well, you know, Jackie said that you, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was terrible." And now I'm doing it.
1: That, that you owe on them royalties now, scale. yeah, right? Exactly. Right. So even while you were in high school, you were laying the groundwork for the the career that would follow, right? Because there were you were. I guess, in St. Louis, finding some internships and things?
2: Yeah, I was an intern at the local CBS affiliate and at KMOX Radio, which was a big, the voice of St. Louis. I didn't want to work in radio, but I just would take any job in media
1: that I could. And so you go off to college at Boston University. I've seen different reports. What were you pursuing as a major?
2: I was pursuing broadcast journalism.
1: Okay, yeah. and, and with what future in mind at that I point? I wanted was to be
2: a, a reporter on a, you know, on a local station anywhere. And with hopes of moving up the ladder to the biggest place I could get.
1: Sure, and even while you're at BU, though, you start. That's when you first started going into New York to. No, I
2: really came to New York. I interviewed Susan Lucci. She was my first big interview. She was. I had an assignment to write a, a feature story in a news writing and reporting class mm-hmm. about someone, and they said, "Reach for the stars. Try to interview someone famous and get right. it published in the in the free press." Yeah, and I did, and I got an interview with Susan Lucci, but then. I wound up interning at CBS News in New York my summer before my senior year. I was accepted for internships at KSDK in St. Louis, which is very powerful NBC affiliate in Mm -hmm. St. Louis and at CBS News in New York. And I remember telling the woman at Channel 5 that I was going to instead accept the internship at at CBS in New York and she said, you're making the biggest mistake of your career. And I said, what career? I don't have a career. And of course it wound up being the greatest thing I ever did because I wound up, it changed my course. Cause I said, oh, okay, I'm no longer going to move from market to market. I just want to move straight to New York and be, I want to swim with the big fish sure. and I'll be a small fish. And I'll just, I was like, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to start waiting tables until I got a job at CBS. Right. Cause I wanted to work at CBS. And I didn't even have to start Why waiting tables. It was because I had it was where I knew people. Yeah. You know, right I, I, I had a, you know, I was an intern at the morning show, which which, you know, was horrible. It was number three. <laughs> it was the laughing stock. But everybody was coming on the show. I mean, here right. I was in the green room with Henry Kissinger and right. Joan Rivers and all these people. And I was like, Well, this is where it's at. Right. It's happening. Right, right. You know, so I wanted to be there.
1: So it's I guess nineteen ninety, you just graduate, you're in your Early twenties. Yeah. You moved to the big city here. What was what was your life outside of I guess so you immediately started working there? But what was yeah. your personal life like?
2: My personal life was great. Yeah. I had a million friends. I mean, my Jeannie and Jackie moved to New York at the same time okay. I did. Yeah. So there they were. I had friends from college who moved to New York. And all my friends from then are still my great friends. Yeah. People talk about Oh you have so many famous friends and I do and I've had these you know I've known Sarah Jessica Parker since 2000 or right. 1999 but my 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 real core group of friends has not changed
1: so the CBS period there was obviously went well you're you're worked your way up uh, I guess to senior producer of an early show in 48 hours which yep. you know and how quick a turnaround was that You know I was at the time my rise at CBS was
2: considered fairly meteoric because I was the youngest I was the youngest associate producer then I was the youngest producer and I think I was the youngest senior producer too because that all happened when I was in my 20s wow. I think so yeah at the time it was considered meteoric yeah. I guess and I was always the youngest I forgot that.
1: So why then in 2000, I believe, did you decide to leave?
2: I had spent 10 years at CBS News for the entire 90s. And it was, I was back at the morning show. I was really comfortable. You would argue too comfortable. I had... Exactly my life. I knew what I could get away with. I knew when I didn't have to show up. I would like go to L.A., spend 10 days there around the Oscars. I would do, you know, it was like, and I I had become friendly through my friend Bruce with Barry Diller at the time. Okay. And he said, you have to leave there. You have to leave there. And I was like, why, you know, everything's perfect. I'm really comfortable. He said, well, that's why, like, you know, why I left is he offered me a job to run programming at a cable startup called trio that Mm -hmm. he was starting, which was meant to be an arts and culture channel in the vein of kind of, kind of what you want PBS to be kind of more in the vein of channel four in the UK, creating kind of smart buzzworthy documentaries and original programming. And I knew how to produce television, but I didn't know much more than that. I knew about booking, I knew, you know, so, but I didn't know about budgets, I didn't know about ad sales, marketing, anything. So I, and it was a startup, so it was about a, it was about a year or two after I was there that the channel wound up even getting on air. Right. So it was, I learned from the ground up about starting a cable channel and what that meant and, the ch- and, you know, from Barry Diller and Stephen Chow. So I have Barry to thank, really,
1: for my career in cable. And is that also where you first cross paths with somebody that you continue to work with, I think, Lauren Zelaznick? Lauren
2: Zelaznick, yes. Lauren wound up taking over for Trio a few years into my run there. Trio, we were, Barry's company merged with Universal. Then Universal and NBC merged. NBC Universal pulled the plug on Trio, moved Lauren Zlasnik to Bravo. <laughs> Lauren said, I want you to come run programming at Bravo. And I said to myself, I don't want this job, I don't identify with the Bravo brand, which was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, given what I was it at that well, time? Well, it was really gay, which is so funny. <laughs> it was gay weddings, it was right. queer eye, queer, yeah. boy meets boy. I wanted to go run programming at Logo which was just starting and I interviewed with Brian, Brian Graydon, and I did not get the job. And I kind of to this day can't get over that right, I didn't right, get the right. job because <laughs> there's
1: no one gayer, you know. I mean I, I just But can't also get over. ask ask yourself this, why did you not want to go to Bravo?
2: I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea. But it just it's another life lesson where it's like the job you think you want to get like you know, maybe isn't the job that right. you were meant to get because I would say that it was destiny that I went to Bravo. I became Bravo Andy. Lauren wound up through a series of events putting me on the air and my goal of being on the air was fulfilled years after the fact. Right? Oh, you know, 16, 17 years later.
1: Well, let's let's break that. Okay. Let's break down how that happened because first of all, so your job title initially there was Programming executive? Is that, or what was that? or was it My to- original
2: job title at Bravo was in charge of production. Okay. So my team made the shows, and there was another team that developed the shows. And what were the shows I get that- credited with creating The Real Housewives. Yeah. In fact, okay. Amy and Tricasso Davis yes. developed The Real Housewives of Orange County, brought it over to me and Sherry Levine and Francis Barrick. We then produced it. And, you know, kind of turned it into what it is. Right, right, right.
1: But you're also working with a lot of other shows at that time, Well, the
2: shows... So Project Runway had wrapped the first part of its first season. We hadn't shot the finale. So now we're in post on Project Runway. Took over production of Queer Eye, which was a real bear. Because all those guys now were super famous, and half of them were acting like assholes. (laughs) I mean, it was talent management, and it was... It was a lot. Right. That was a huge bear. Right. That right. took up a
1: lot of hours of my day because they were still delivering big ratings. Is yeah, that, it yeah. was a
2: huge show. It yeah. was a big franchise show for yeah. the channel. So you had to deal with, and
1: this. it was a
2: great show. <laughs> yeah, but it was a nightmare. And they were, but they were also being nominated for Emmys right. every year. Right. We develop, you know. So then Lauren Zelaznik says, "I want to do for food what we did with fashion." So we work with the magical elves and we create Top Chef mm-hmm. and. That was a show that I think, I don't even think development even had any, I think that went straight to production mm-hmm. because we knew we were it was an automatic green light. That was a show that gave me so many sleepless nights because we did not have a host for season one until I want to say two or three days before oh we started because <laughs> we hired Padma and then she bailed on us to go shoot a mini series in India. We had no host we were going out to everybody. (laughs) And I remember meeting, someone brought me Katie Lee Joel. And I was like, you know what? She's a foodie. And we told her to be real. We produced her horribly because we told her to be really stern. Right. And because we didn't think anyone would take her seriously because she had a Southern accent and she was like 24. (laughs) And you know, now Katie Lee is this big, you know, food person. Right. And, but at the time, (laughs) she didn't have credibility and whatever. But, So that's how Top Chef, you know, that was the beginnings of that. Gosh, Millionaire Matchmaker, Rachel Zoe, flipping out, Million Dollar Listing.
1: And you came to enjoy all this stuff? I loved it. No, it was
2: amazing. No, it was amazing. And I became Bravo Andy. So in the course of this, and in the course of The Real Housewives, and in the course of really the success of Project Runway, Lauren Zelaznik said, I started emailing them dishy stuff from the set of a show. And she said, you should write a blog on the Bravo website. You'll be the only television executive that's writing a blog. I start writing a blog. Then I start getting interviewed on CNN and various things because there's a TV executive who can talk about TV. Right. Then she says, I want you to do a show on bravotv.com. That's like an after show after top after chef top and project show. Runway." Right. I do that. Then we need someone to host a reunion show because Housewives season two, right. Orange County is hitting, right? I do a reunion show. Now this, I'm like, this is my big, this is amazing because I'm getting to, do what I'm you getting really to be on to the do. air, right. but I didn't want Lauren or any, or Francis to think that I thought that I was valuable as an on air person. So I was like, just pay me a dollar, pay me as little as you can pay me. They're like, we have to pay you for this stuff. I remember saying like, pay me a hundred dollars. Like I don't want, because I knew they could get someone else to do it who yeah. was a name and so anyway and I started doing I became kind of reunion show guy sure and then Michael Davies now I'm running production and development right so now I have, now I'm EVP of all production and development I've got like 30 shows right. I've got massive development slate. I mean, this is serious development. We're developing scripted. We were developing girlfriends. We were developing odd mom out. And then Bravo, Michael Davies, who is my patron saint in television, besides Lauren and Francis comes to Bravo and says, I have this little studio. He took me out for lunch after he saw me hosting a flipping out reunion. And he said, you are talent. You are on air talent. And I was like, I was so excited that someone outside the network was looking that, at me like right. I there was something in me that could work on TV right. that I was just really flattered and he said to Bravo I can do Andy's show that he's doing online from my little studio. And I remember in 2009 my a good friend of mine died suddenly. And a week later I took a week off from work. A week later I came back and they Bravo said do you want to do your show on air? And I thought, wow, isn't this ironic? This is my big break. Right. And but because my friend died, it's like, it was actually, it put everything in perspective. Right, right. Because I was like, it just really was a good check for me because and it it was just good perspective. Sure. And so I do the show. I'm sweating profusely. We don't have air conditioning in the clubhouse, (laughs) but we're live at midnight on a Thursday night. And, you know, it wasn't, it makes me cringe when I watch it now. We try to do a lot and my face is tense, but I remember I wasn't nervous. I was, I remember like right before air, I went to the bathroom and I was in there and I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, you got this. This is, you know, (laughs) this is your thing. And so, at the time, the biggest thing that upset me at the time was when people said I gave myself my own talk show. Because there
1: was this assumption, all right, he's an exec with his own show. Exactly.
2: He must have given it. Right. And, you know, the truth is you can't give yourself your own no. talk show. I couldn't have said to Lauren and Francis, I want to be the face of the network. Right, right. And that didn't happen until years later. Sure. That People called, started calling me, oh, he's the face of Bravo. And... You know, one needs to understand that if one is head of programming for a channel and one goes to their boss, because everybody has a boss and says, I want to be the face of the channel or I want to host a late night show, the answer is 99% of the time going to be, go do your job and make hit shows. You know what I mean? We had a lot of hit shows and I was kicking ass as a production executive and development executive. I had a great team. I knew how to delegate. I knew, you know, I was... Always there. I always answered my emails. I always responded. You I was taking in the your meetings. Eye off the ball for me. I never yeah. took my eye off the ball. I'm at I'm on my show at midnight. I am at a programming meeting at 9 a.m. the next morning. Right. So and what happened is the ratings were good. And that's the other thing. If the ratings had been bad, you're gone. I no one looks at the ratings before I do right. in the morning. And I know these ratings are good, these are bad. If the right. ratings were bad, I would have
1: gotten canceled. So before we go any further down the road with, with your own show, let's go back to The Housewives because even before people knew you as the the guy who's doing Watch What Happens Live, you were The Housewives guy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important maybe for, for folks who who need to be brought up to speed, let's just contextualize this. The The original Real Housewives was Real Housewives of Orange County, Goes on the air in 2006. You're one of the EPs, as we said. What was the context in which that showed up in the scene? Where, you know, what came before Desperate it,
2: Housewives. That was, was the big the thing? context. Desperate Housewives was the biggest hit on TV. Okay. And so here we are developing a show about neighbors in Orange County in a gated community, whose hair is bonder, their boobs are bigger, they're all rich. They're like varying degrees of hotness. And it became to me look, they all went to the same tennis club. I was like, this is like Peyton Place or Knott's Landing. Right. Literally, they right. live in a cul-de-sac. Right. So we called it the Real Housewives, not the Desperate Housewives, right. but there are Desperate Housewives, right. but they're the Real Housewives. And still to this day, people call the show the Desperate Housewives. Right. <laughs> that was the context. And, and also- Lawrence Zelaznik had the brilliant idea right before we premiered of saying, we're going to call it the Real Housewives. Of Orange County, and I was like, "That's so dumb." She said, "We're doing it in case we ever do it anywhere else." I go, "We're never doing it anywhere else." (laughs) We almost canceled the first season because we were, it was tough to produce.
1: It was also, how do you explain what this is? It seems like well, we
2: we kind of said it's a real life desperate housewives. Okay,
1: yeah. And also, though, just to mention, I don't know if any of these things actually were on your guys' radar. You're thinking about it at the time, but just culturally. This was only a few years after the OC, the, the yep. narrative.
2: Well, that was the other thing. There was the OC and Laguna Beach, so it almost seemed tired.
1: Right. It
2: almost seemed like we were getting into the OC at the wrong time. It had been played
1: out. Plus, reality's blowing up everywhere. You have right around that time, think Simple Life. As you say, Laguna Beach, the hills, keeping up with the Kardashians maybe right after. There was no, it wasn't like the safe bet at that point. Well, we
2: were doing reality, but it was, it was, no, it was not, it was not necessarily a bet at all.
1: Some people have asked, first of all, you know, how do you even find these women? Forget the first season, but like generally now it's everywhere. What was
2: great is that in the first groups, Amy's team had been developing a show called Manhattan Moms. They were developing around a group of women in Atlanta that was going to be about a show called Hot Atlanta, about how Atlanta was the black Hollywood. And so we had these shows in development, but I think Amy went out and found the Jersey Housewives with sirens and said, okay, let's find a group of women who all know each other. Right. So basically how the original casting people found women, you know, and in New York, they were going to country clubs. They went to Bridgehampton Polo, which is where a lot of douchey people <laughs> hang out who might want to be on TV. Right. So, you know, right. and we looked for groups of real
1: friends. So that's what you're looking for in them. What do you think these women, especially having have seen... One
2: thing money cannot buy is fame.
1: Okay, period. but knowing that the fame is going to come at the price of exposing themselves, not always in a very flattering light. You know what? They don't the one care. One thing
2: money cannot buy <laughs> is fame.
1: Fame so, is an aphrodisiac. And to your point... Not only fame, but there's the potential for some of them have done very well. This
2: is this is before branding was really a thing. So if you look at Bethany, you've got to give her credit in season one of The Housewives for sitting there with Luann saying, oh, I made up my own cocktail. It's called the Skinny Girl Margarita. And this is what it is. And she had a company called Bethany Bakes. And that's why she went on The Housewives. She wanted to promote her brand of freaking muffins and that
1: wasn't something where you guys are saying this is not your vehicle to you know sort of surreptitiously get promote your your stuff
2: we liked it because that was her real job we wanted women who had real things going okay it we resented the women who were just finding stuff or New York, we always had the hardest time with because people were coming up with stuff. Jill Zarin was like shilling this and that <laughs> and the other. And we were like, this is gross. You have to stop.
1: Well, so sticking on Bethany Frankel for a second, just to, you know, for anybody who, who maybe isn't a follower of this stuff, debuted on Real Housewives of New York 2008. 2010, she gets her own spinoff show on Bravo, Bethany Getting Married. And in er- by early 2011, she cover sold of
2: Forbes magazine cover
1: of Forbes sold the skinny girl cocktail line for it's been reported anywhere from eight to one hundred twenty million dollars. But regardless, yeah. that's a hell of a cover
2: of Forbes. She was yep. living in a really shitty one bedroom apartment when she started shooting on Housewives.
1: So when you see that, what goes through your mind makes
2: me super proud of her and super excited. But for I the mean, show just the potential
1: the- of what, what I mean from the point of the view of the show is like you've got something that can do that. Yeah, but it.
2: You know what? It has to be right, and the idea has to be good. It's so much more than the show because there are ten thousand products that they that the women have tried to launch. that right. have gone completely. There's a warehouse full of Fabellini <laughs> somewhere that Teresa Judice is right. you know paying rent right. on. But
1: she did become a best selling author. She You've did, got other yeah. people doing uh, people you know using some of them for for very good things, causes, and whatever using the platform. But why do you think, in terms of your audience for those shows, why do you think? people generally, but especially women, watch these shows in such large numbers? What's the alert? Because it's
2: the modern soap opera, and we love to judge human behavior, (laughs) and the themes are, the casting is great, and the themes are universal, being a wife, being a mother, being a friend. And it's real, and it is there are real stakes between these friends, and it's relatable. So how real
1: is it? Because that always comes up. Is there any degree of... There's no
2: storyboarding. There's no... We have to plan where they're eating. They're encouraged to think on camera. Yeah. They're encouraged to talk about what's been going on with them.
1: And while the Housewives franchise was becoming this phenomenon you were simultaneously still involved with these other things. Yeah. Winning in 2007 a Peabody for, as, a, as an EP of Project Runway, 2010 an Emmy as EP of Top Chef. And yet, I wonder how you handled, because, you know, these are, some would argue, high, there's the highbrow, there's the lowbrow side of Andy, right? Some I've peop-
2: always been a high-low guy, and yeah. Bravo's always been a high-low guy.
1: But, did, so when some people, though, in some of the circles where half the time you're spending your time, are saying to you, you know, giving you flack for, for bringing housewives into the world, for instance. Yep. People got increasingly, especially now that we have a reality yep. president, yeah. you know, some people say, are you responsible for dumbing down America or whatever? You know, what's your I'm answer I'm responsible
2: to that? for entertaining some people in America. Right. There are a million channels. Right. And, you know, Donald Trump is a jackass, yes. but he is someone who knows how to speak in front of a television camera and people relate to that. And he's someone who will say anything and he entertained people and he captivated the media and he did every interview that he would do. And while Hillary Clinton wasn't doing
1: any interviews. And so he he did something. He captured a movement. You and know, to your point, I want to quote back to you and then ask for your reaction. This is something that was in The New York Times just recently, quote, Trump was not not like one of Cohen's housewives. He knew he had to be entertaining to stay on the show. He was willing to say anything to get his contract extended. Throughout his campaign, he pulled the "I know something, but I'm not going to this, say this it now" what trick. Said.
2: This is all what I told a reporter from the Times. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. No, yeah.
1: but I mean, I want to I want to yeah. expand on this. Most recently employed the, but I'm not going to say it now. Trick most recently employed by Bethany Frankel about dirt she has but won't reveal about both Dorinda yeah, and Yeah, He's Julesville. a housewife. Yes. And just keep just just because this is a testament to you, I think, in some way at the at the debates, the candidates fought for time to speak and demanded that they be allowed the time they were promised, which is what happens at the reunions. And it goes on to say, quote, Anderson Cooper was a moderator of a debate in St. Louis that ended with the candidates saying something nice about each other, which is exactly how Cohen ends some Real Housewives reunions. Close quote. Would there be a President Donald Trump without reality TV generally and without you specifically?
2: Well, No. There would not be a Donald Trump, I don't think, without reality TV, but I will not—please do not hang Donald <laughs> Trump on me.
1: I don't accept that. Okay.
2: But he does act like a season one Orange County housewife.
1: Right. Yes, I've been saying it for years. <laughs> okay, so the last of these things where just how you respond to the flack, and then we move on to yeah. more— po- But but— what about from a feminism perspective? Are these shows good for women? And the reason, let me just tee it up here. We had Gloria Steinem on this podcast. Yes, she
2: hates the house and, and I heroes, know she says. H- that it's we, a- we
1: didn't even ask her about it. We said, talk to us about the Kardashians. Yes. And this was her answer. Quote, it isn't the individuals who are at fault. It's the culture that says... You were rewarded for your outsides, not your insides, but I regret it and it's painful. It's not quite as painful as The Housewives, which is perhaps the most painful. That's the closest to a female minstrel show that I can imagine. But again, I understand why. Those women are looking for a way to start their businesses or get to be known. So it's not to criticize the people who are in the game. It's to change the game. It's embarrassing, close quote. Is that unfair? I think it's fine that
2: she feels that way. And I think if it was the only representation of women on television, I think that this would be a real, real serious conversation. It isn't. There are many, many portrayals of women on television. And I know that Gloria Steinem has not watched a full season of Any Housewives where there are moments of incredible greatness and triumph and strength and beauty for the female race. It wouldn't still be working. Listen, if it was just a ratchet buffoonery, it would not still be going as strong as it is. It just wouldn't. There are you know, moments of beauty and strength in these shows. There, there just are. And, I, and there are millions of smart, strong feminists who watch and love The Real Housewives and somehow identify with the women. Listen, there are some bad role models on the show. And there are also some good ones. Mm -hmm. If it was only bad, it it couldn't sustain itself.
1: Yeah. So in the midst of it becoming this phenomenon, which regardless of how anyone feels, it certainly is, you you know, we've said it's July 2009. You go on now for the first time with Watch What Happens Live as this basically uh, uh, an after show for initially top shelf, then Real Housewives. Talk about how small a thing this started out as because you mentioned well, I mean, there's not even a is. fan. I mean, it's still, yeah, there was no
2: <laughs> fan. I mean, we were in this small room and uh, 22 seats. Yeah, 22 seats. It started as a housewives after show. And the great thing about it was what it started as is still exactly what it is today. We're still the only live show in late night. Why is that a asset? Because in this universe of everything changing every half hour, right. it's a real asset for us, especially in pop culture. It allows us to be on top of pop culture and news. It also, you know, and timely in a way that that other people aren't. I mean, even if you if you look at the late night shows that are about politics, they tape at 5. Right. I mean, it's six hours later they're getting on the air. I mean, six hours at this moment. Now, I don't do a lot of politics, but I certainly can be super reactive Mm -hmm. when pop culture news breaks and when news breaks. Also, the live thing is I feel like we've—I'm surprised— in my mind, we've created an entirely new genre in late night television, which can only be compared to what Howard Stern has done for years on morning radio. Tele- he was on morning a big radio. model for you, right? He's a big model for me. I go there in a way that no other late night host does. And I did it at the beginning, and we start talking about the show as an after show for Housewives, and that's important because the Housewives are my whack pack. <laughs> they are, and Howard has his whack right, pack, right. and they're my. they are my testing ground and they're the people who i could originally drink with and they're the people that i could ask anything and you can and always book always book except you know the brilliant thing that i did from the beginning is i got real housewives fans from the beginning because i knew that the show was not going to sustain itself right. and i didn't want it to be a show that only housewives was on so in that first initial batch i I was calling on people that I knew and friends to come on the show. I had right. Sarah Jessica Parker. I had Tina Fey. I mm-hmm. had Liam Neeson, mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld. Now, Liam and Jerry didn't talk about the housewives. Right. So that's when I was proving to Bravo this show can be more than a right. show about the housewives. That's what I was doing. And that's what it became. True. And I think they early on very smartly saw well, wait a minute. Now we have someone besides Jim Lipton who's getting huge stars to right. come on Bravo, but they're playing games and they're drinking
1: and they're making news. And Be- bringing down your audience age quite a bit. For Absolutely. Jim's yeah.
2: And, you know, we were, I, I, what's so important to me about the, how the housewives have impacted me on, impacted me on Watch What Happens Live and how Howard Stern has is, the notion of me going there, and I know Bravo has a big ad campaign saying he goes there right now, mm-hmm. but it's true because this is the only show in late night television where you're going to see a host going there in the way of trying to generate news and ask questions and be dangerous. I want this show to feel dangerous and unscripted right. and sometimes awkward and always exciting. We don't pre-interview our guests. It is not canned. They don't come and say, Andy loved the story where right. you, whatever. Right. We let the conversation go and, and it
1: always pays off. And to your point about sort of what sets it apart from other shows, you know, Cord and might quibble, but you're the only guys that have a real... Open bar, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it. It. it's there in the background, but he, he doesn't use it. You right, guys right, use yeah, it. Yeah, I know.
2: He said at the yeah. beginning, he was like, We're the only late night show that has a bar. Yeah. I'm like, You gotta Sweetie, use it. Yeah. I've been on the show for, <laughs> I, on the air for like eight years right, already, right? Right. Yeah.
1: And I don't know if CBS would actually let them drink on the on yeah, the show. Yeah, no, we so, absolutely do. Um, so there's yeah. that. Also, from the beginning, interactivity with the audience.
2: Well that's the other thing. We knew that if we were going to be live, we were going to be interactive. And so this is the that's the other reason why live is so important to us. The audience they generate the conversation. So we've got a million polls going every episode. People are calling. I've got People on Twitter calling bullshit to what people are saying on the show (laughs) and saying, you know, as simple as like, I love your shoes. Who made those? I mean, those little things where the audience can get in there. It just it helps me dictate what
1: people want to know. If you were to sort of step outside of this for a second and try to dissect the audience member, let's say your average viewer, it may have started. Maybe the initial lure was the housewives. But what is the. What is the underlying reason why they are into this guy who they probably didn't really maybe they maybe they'd heard of as a guy behind the housewives. But right. You know, is it because you're very open about your own life? The set, it creates a very intimate feel. It yeah. seems like it's your place. Yeah. But is it aspirational that they see what your life is like and they want to. I think imp-
2: it's because I'm their friend and I think people view me as their friend and people come up to me every day and TV is very intimate and I share on social media and I share on the show. But to me, this show is about me and the people watching and we're doing it, we're in it together because the viewers are a part of the conversation. So they're in on it. So I think when people come up to me and say, you don't realize it, but we're, you know, like you're my best friend or we're friends. I'm like, no, I do. Like, (laughs) you know, and and if I can be their buddy, then that's, that is great to me. Then I've done my job. It's, you know, if I'm tucking people in at night That's that's an intimate thing. Oh, yeah. I say I I say I'm a fluffer for straight guys (laughs) because like I get their wives all hopped up and then, they you know, I'm gone in a half an hour and they've been playing the drinking game. And it's like, hey, honey. And I'm like, you're welcome, straight guys. That's great. But the other great great thing is that there are more guys that come up to me and say, you know what? My wife got me into your show and I never miss it. and I don't even really watch the Housewives, but I love your show. You know, so. The great thing is we're, 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 we have the housewives a couple nights a week. And then, you know, the other three where everything else. And I think that's, that's, I also think that speaks to the sensibility of what's going on in the culture. Reality stars are stars now, legitimate. You know, it's different. They're on the cover of Us Magazine. So, so I think that's, that's why Watch What Happens Live resonates in a way that others don't. All too.
1: that explains why why viewers want to watch. What I wonder if you can explain is why do you think you get away with the sort of questions with guests that they might not put up with from other people. What, what's And the, knowing that that's what they're signing up for, they still come. I think it's
2: partly, I think they want a good time and they want something spontaneous. My show is an easy show to do. We don't do a pre-interview. Mm-hmm. People hate, I hate doing yeah. pre-interviews. You sit there trying to come up with funny stories that have happened to you for the last six weeks. Right. It's, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm situationally funny. I'm not a comedian. Right. So like, I don't have a routine to go in and do. And I'm do, so, and same with most of my guests. It's, It's fun. I think people who are doing the talk show rounds, I think they like to challenge themselves. And also I think it's an aspirational place that people want to be. I think, you know, so many people are now coming and doing my show and they're like, I can't wait to do this. Oh my God, I can't (laughs) wait to see what happens. They can't wait to see what happens. But the other thing is, I know that they know that I'm celebrating them. Mm -hmm. If I ask a really pointed plea, the fifth question. Listen, I'll take any answer. It's just the gift of the universe that people actually will reveal well, stuff, engage, you right? know?
1: The the show's popularity and yours obviously are largely intertwined and so the show moved to two nights and then I guess in January 2012 five nights yeah. and obviously a larger space 50 seats I believe. And as the fan base... We have
2: 30 seats. 30 now. seats. It was uh, 22, and now we're like 33 30. or something like that. We're in a new studio, which is upstairs from our old studio, and we have real green rooms now. We're right. not like breaking down our
1: conference room right, to make right. green rooms. So how, though, as the show's taking off, did your life change, and how did that greater familiarity with you impact the way that you go about doing the show. It must be a little different. It's
2: actually fairly, you know, there've been little tweaks that have, but the truth is it is as spontaneous and as organic a growth as it could ever be.
1: And you don't feel like now, okay, so I'm in the club. I'm going to be a little bit more timid about how I ask something or I'm going to be a little less crass or whatever it might be. It doesn't, I'm going to be me because
2: <laughs> the thing is, the viewers will cry bullshit on me. You know, they they are part of the conversation. Right. And so they want me, you know, it's what they expect. It's what the show is. And there's n- no other show like it. So
1: no. in late 2011, as the show was about to expand to the five nights a week, your day job began to change and and has subsequently continued to oh I left my day job right yes that was when by the by the time 2013 right then it's all gone yes
2: so I spent one year running I, I took away my production job and then I was in charge of development with an incredible team so for a year I was doing the show five nights a week and running development at Bravo which is a lot yeah but if you consider that now I'm five nights a week and I'm still EP of All the Housewives. I'm doing reunion shows. I have my own radio channel on Sirius. I'm touring with Anderson. I'm writing books. books. So I I still have... Yeah, pretty full play. Yeah.
1: But do you... Does any part of you miss the the stuff that you were doing before the show or are you not happy really to-
2: because I'm developing and producing shows out of my production company. Right. I have a show called Andy Cohen. Then and now I right. just went to Bravo with two other pitches for other shows, not involving me. Mm-hmm. I'm hosting love connection yes. on Fox. I'm a producer of everything I do and I'm still a, the very active executive producer of watch what happens live and the housewives. Right. So that is where I can work my muscle.
1: May I take a page out of your book? And you referenced Plead the Fifth. Yeah. Can we, can we do a, uh, a do round? It. Yeah. Okay. So just so people who aren't familiar with it, I mean, basically three questions. You can evade one by pleading the fifth. Exactly. So first of all, to begin with a, a game that, that you call politely Marry Shag Kelt. Yeah. Of your Howard's cur- Game. Howard's Game, right. Yeah. Of your current late night competitors, you have to pick one for each.
2: Oh, of the... Okay, who would I marry? Who would I shag and who would I kill? I would marry... Oh, God. Okay, (laughs) I would marry Jimmy Fallon. Mm -hmm. I would shag... Huh, who would I shag? (laughs) I would shag Kimmel. (laughs) Who would I kill? See, when Chelsea was on at 11, I would have killed her because she was my competition. (laughs) I guess I would kill... Corden because he has guests out at the same time. Right. His format is the most like mine,
1: and he and he's still going on about his bar. So that's yeah, really <laughs> okay. Number two, were you ever approached about replacing Regis Philbin or later Michael I was Strahan?
2: Not, no, I was not. never even. I started. started with Kelly. There was never, I, you know, there was never a real conversation.
1: No. Who is the celebrity guest who you came to dislike the most after actually interacting with them?
2: See, I could bleed the fifth right now. Yes. I will say, you know, I had higher hopes for one of our great political minds, Scott Bayo, mm-hmm. who was on. And then I guess the, I was being very, I love Scott Bayo. I'm a huge Scott Bayo fan, but I think we played a game called Andy loves Crotchy, Like Joni loves Crotchy, <laughs> yes, yeah. where he had to guess like celebrity crotches of ex-girlfriends oh, God. and at Mrs. Scott Bayo decided she hated the game and was like tweeting me all during the thing and oh, then blocked me God. on Twitter. And then, But I don't dislike him right? because, again, he is one of our great political minds. And (laughs) so maybe him.
1: All right. Just to try to get away with one other one. Uh, Okay. What's the drunkest you've ever been on your show? You know what? In the early days, I used to get
2: really hammered on the show because they would really— I was so excited about drinking on the air. It was such a novelty and we were on at midnight and I just felt like I was freaking Johnny Carson right. or something. I don't know who I thought I was, Dean but Martin, I was just, yeah, right? Dean Martin. I just was really excited right. by it. Then that got a little old and, but there was an episode with Kylie Minogue and Elijah Wood and- uh, yeah, I saw Kylie Minogue like 6 months later at the Met ball and I said, "Oh my god, that was so fun. We were so drunk." And she goes, "You were so drunk." And I was like, "Uh-oh,
1: I can't do this. <laughs> you got to go back and watch that one." Yeah. I'll have to go back and watch. Right. But uh, a final question just big picture is obviously a lot has happened in the last roughly a decade, right? So yeah, I mean, what do you make of that now that, you know, we've sat here and and kind of I, I don't know how often you you go, go through, through it, all it all like this. Yeah. But, you know, A, what do you make of it and B, What's on the bucket list, though? I mean, you've, you've obviously you're obviously an ambitious, creative guy. Right. What's left to do?
2: I what I make of it is that the great thing is that my passion for what I was doing at the time was always led to my happiness. And I feel like that was a circle and not to get to Oprah, but I do. I remember when I started at CBS news, just the fact that I was getting a check right. that said CBS on it. I thought I had made it then. And then I thought every job I've had, I thought I made it. Yeah. So I was never looking like I never got too political. I never got too crazy. I'm not saying I was never ambitious cause I've always been ambitious, mm-hmm. but I was always passionate and happy. And I think if you can be happy with the opportunities that you have and are given, that's gonna make you better at your job and it certainly made me better at my job. And you know, I took one or two big risks, which really paid off. But you know, just the fact that you can't, you can't, I just let everything happen organically and I'm so glad that I did. And in terms of my bucket list, you know, Weirdly Love Connection is kind was kind of a big bucket list. It's a big network show. I, I I've wanted to do a big network yeah. show. It's also a show that is perfectly suited for me. It has game elements, which I've always wanted to kind of host a game show, mm-hmm. and so I just think the combination of the six or eight things that I'm doing right now, I don't really have anything left on my bucket right, list. Right. I wouldn't want to do a network late night show at this point no one that I know watches TV at Mm. 1230 in the morning. Mm -hmm. So like there was a moment in time where there were openings at 1230. And I was like, the truth of the matter is I don't even watch TV at 1230 and I'm, up yeah. at 12.30. Right. So like I just feel like so many people come up to me and say, oh my God, I stay up late to watch your show. My show's on at 11. Mm-hmm. People have jobs. A lot of people watch my show in the morning. They right. DVR and watch it in the morning. So I love my time slot. And I love that I'm live. Yeah. I, I really... And, and Bravo has been such an incredible home for me. And they've allowed me to do so much. And they've allowed Watch What Happens Live to really grow
1: into something super unique that I'm very proud of. Without the kinds of checks and balances that you probably would have to deal with at a network. At a,
2: absolutely. They don't, they have not, Frances Barrack has not given me a note. She has encouraged me to be myself. And she, the one note that she gave me was to shave my beard <laughs> once because she didn't like my she beard. She didn't like it.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate Thanks. it. Yeah. Appreciate it.
0: Plus.